2: My existence as a female person of colour is a form of activism. I realise just how much the choice to be an activist is a privilege because so many people don't have that choice. So many people, activism is genuinely a thing of desperation. It's the only thing that they can do. There's so many different ways that activism could be defined, but anything that is against the system and anyone who doesn't benefit from the system that we live in, I think that existence is a form of activism.
0: but we're no one's model minority.
3: This is a show about all of you for all of us. Hey, Roman. Hey, Sharon. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year indeed. Well, happy solar New Year.
3: Oh, goodness. We'll get to the Lunar New Year in a few weeks. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. So uh, how was your break?
0: I'm still on it. How about you? The lonely podcaster never sleeps, Sharon.
3: Wait, so what does that mean for this episode? All right, I got something for you.
0: So, you know, (laughs) Times
3: Person of the Year? Oh my God, you booked Elon Musk for the pod?
0: Uh, I mean, he's South African, but he's, no, no. No? Not at all.
3: Um, Did you book Kamala Harris for the pod? Give me till the
0: end of the year on that one. So slow your roll, Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. So way back in 2011, Times Person of the Year was the protester. But you know, I like to think of them more as activists. I'm not sure I get where you're going with this. Okay. So look, probably no surprise, uh, but I think one of, if not the defining issue of our time is climate. Because when you take away all the other really important noise, we're actually changing the very nature of the planet we live on, and frankly, the one that our kids will inherit.
3: Is this where we tee up another one of Jay's Animalia episodes, Raman?
0: <laughs> yes, but it's even better. Uh, as you know, our very good friend of the pod, Jay Veraldi, runs an organization called Animalia, whose mission it is to create positive, inclusive dialogue on critical topics that protect this planet and to support the people and organizations working to lift up all of those who occupy it.
3: Yeah, I love Jay. So many of the stories he puts together on Animalia are really focused on changing the culture and awareness around the climate movement.
0: Yeah. And, you know, honestly, beyond it being a great podcast that everyone should add to their rotation like yesterday, Animalia has a really great newsletter that you should also subscribe to. They have some dope merchandise and put some amazing eco experiences together as well. So just stop what you're doing right now and go subscribe and check out everything at joinanimalia.com.
3: So is this now an ad for Animalia or what? (laughs) It's
0: actually (laughs) not. Okay. So I genuinely believe the work that Jay is doing. He's just creating content that is frankly changing the way I personally think about these things. And as All of us need to be thinking about the new year and the silly idea of resolutions. We should also be thinking about what it means to be more active and aware. And so on the Animalia podcast recently, Jay actually brought together two climate activists who were at the COP26 in Glasgow.
3: Oh, yeah. This was the episode with the young woman from South Africa and the guy from Lebanon, right?
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. So a few weeks back, Jay sat down for a really powerful discussion with two really incredible young climate activists, Raisa noor Mohammed from South Africa and Hussein Ali Gandour from Lebanon.
3: Yeah, and they're not simply minorities because of the color of their skin. They're minorities because of what they believe and where they believe it. Raisa and Hussein are climate activists, which is a minority thing in itself, but they're doing it in some unique and challenging places where caring about the climate is not necessarily a mainstream thing.
0: Exactly. And our entire show is about hearing minority perspectives that we don't often get to hear. And so this is a really special conversation that more folks really should be listening to. And look, we're not saying that everyone needs to be an activist, but we all can be a little bit more active. So it's really worthwhile to hear where they're coming from, how they view the world, and the actions that they're taking on the behalf of the climate movement for all of us. At minimum, it might change the way you think about your own personal action, but ultimately to influence and drive systemic change.
3: So let's get out of the way, and we hope you'll enjoy Jay's chat with Raisa and Hussein Ali.
1: Welcome to Animalia, a podcast all about making it easy and inclusive to learn about this big, beautiful planet, the life we share it with, and how to protect it. This week on Animalia, we're bringing you a very special episode with two very special people, Raisa Noor Mohammed, a climate activist from South Africa, and Hussein Ali Gandor, a climate activist from Lebanon. We spend a lot of time talking to scientists, policymakers, entrepreneurs, and domain experts. However, it's also really important we hear the perspective of activists, those who are fighting each and every day to raise awareness and urgency around our climate and biodiversity crisis. They're domain experts as well specifically to hear from activists from other parts of the world. In the case of South Africa and Lebanon, two very unique places that shape very unique and important points of view. That's why I'm so excited to bring you my discussion with Raisa and Hussein today. Both of them attended COP26 in Glasgow and did a write-up about their experience there we are sharing on our weekly newsletter. A not-so-subtle reminder to subscribe to that newsletter if you haven't done so. In our chat today, we're going to learn what fuels them both how they look at their role as activists, where they see progress, how they approach communication with their audience, and what their targets are for 2022 and beyond. Coming up right after this short break. If you're looking for a great gift this year for someone who loves this planet, Everything in the Animalia merch store is 25% off through the end of the year. All of our products are sustainably made. You can see the details on the product description pages, and all of them share between 20 and 65% of proceeds with a partner nonprofit fighting to save this planet and all the incredible life on it. To check out more, go to shop.joinanimalia.com and find something you'll love. Now, back to the episode. Raisa and Hussein use a combination of art and community to advance the climate agenda. It takes a lot of courage, energy, and commitment to do the work they do. Let's first meet Raisa.
2: So, um, so my name is Raisa Nur Mohammed. I'm 19 years old, and I am from South Africa. Um, I'm from Johannesburg, but I currently live in Cape Town, and I study at UCT, which is the University of Cape Town, and my activism journey I feel is very linked to my journey as a person and I can't really separate the two there isn't really a point or two different lines like one is my activism journey and one is my journey as a a person because I feel like as a person of colour a female person of colour in South Africa my existence is a form of activism like living in a system well in the global system by that was created like by white men for white men I feel like anything in anyone that isn't a white man is like anyone that isn't a white man their existence is a form of activism so for me that's yeah Matt. but if I were to put an actual timeline to my activism I think I'd say I really started doing activism in 2019 I attended my first climate strike and then I decided well I wanted to do something um, for the climate movement that I could do because I, I'm not I'm not good at science I couldn't go through all the policy making but I can do art and I wanted to use art in my activism and so I started doing performance art protests to raise awareness about the climate crisis then in 2020 i started boycotting school and i sent a message to my department of environmental affairs and had a fight with the minister and yeah and then from there it's just been lots of on the ground and grassroots and connecting with people and yeah that's me
4: now let's meet hussein my name is hussein i'm 25 years old i'm from lebanon um i've Mostly started to identify as an activist, environmental and climate activist this year, although I have been doing activism work since maybe 2018. Uh, Since after I graduated uh, from university with a biology degree, and I was interested in all the environmental problems in Lebanon and uh, I really cared about them and I, I thought someone should do something about it. And one of my favorite uh, courses at university was uh, environment and pollution. Uh, At the time when I graduated, there was an ongoing waste crisis in our country um, because we have no proper uh, waste management uh, plan or policy that is being implemented. And uh, in 2020, there was the COVID pandemic. during that time uh, i stayed at home i learned how to compost and uh, do gardening so i like uh, and i started recycling i even tried to have my uh, neighbors start sorting waste and recycling uh, because we like you know usually it's not done here in lebanon uh, some people like do it on their own initiative but uh, there's no like uh, municipal service to collect the sorted waste and recycle it. You have to send it to a sorting facility. Um, and after this year, um, there was an oil spill that happened uh, in the Mediterranean. And uh, I thought it was very wrong. The government, again, did not uh, do anything about it because it was incapable. Uh, our government is very in- incompetent and incapable. We have a, a huge political and socioeconomic crisis in Lebanon. So I decided uh, to do something about it because I couldn't like, just stand there and watch what's happening. And I led a volunteer uh, campaign uh, with volunteers that I mobilized through social media. And we did a small crowdfunding uh, we did the beach cleanups to remove the oil, and we made also a petition to pressure the government into more action and transparency. And later, I also made a, a film, short film about waste in Lebanon, which uh, was screened in... Uh, oh, it was selected for two film festivals. And then I applied for the pre-COP, which was in Italy, and like it was the first time I attended a climate conference. And from there, I joined Yongo, which through them I also applied for the COP and which I also got selected. So uh, things this year were really happening very fast. Um, And so, like, this year was mostly uh, when I started to call myself a climate activist because, uh, like, I've had several uh, jobs, but not like I was not specialized in one certain. Domain, I was having different jobs for different periods of time, but all, all, all throughout, I was always doing either voluntary or paid work uh, in relation to uh, like environmental topics um, or uh, something like that. So I figured I can call myself an environmental activist.
1: I'm curious for both of you how would you define? what being a climate activist is? Just in your mind, like what makes, how do you, how do you think about that definition? Does it, and, and or does it even matter, right? Is it just a matter of like, hey, anybody that is pushing this message forward in their own way to their own ability is an activist. Like, how do you think
4: about what goes into being an activist and how, how you define that? I think a climate activist from the word activist is someone who takes climate action regularly, and they have the goal to bring forward the climate justice. Uh, Now with the popular use of social media, I think there are many people who call themselves activists or there are many people who call themselves bloggers or uh, like fashionistas or like models, but maybe they are not truly are. So I think it's someone who is really true to the cause and like, does climate action to bring forward climate justice. Uh, it can be in any form and uh, on any scale, because like, each person can do different things based on their skills, their community, their context, where they are in life. Uh, but, but yeah, this is what I think uh, climate activists uh, boils, boils down to.
2: For me, um, I think, like I said earlier, my existence as a female person of color is a form of activism. So I think, um, what an active, what defines an activist for me? I'm not even going to look at climate activism because, again, I'm an, I feel like I'm an intersectional activist because I feel like everything is everything is just intersectional, and I've actually been doing. A lot of thinking about this recently especially going for COP and seeing and attending these massive marches um in the UK um because we don't have such big marches here in South Africa because for me like going there I realized just how much activism like or the choice to be an activist is a privilege because so many people don't have that choice um so many people um activism is genuinely uh, like a thing of desperation it's the only thing that they can do and so I don't even know how to define what an activist is because again existing as someone who isn't a white man a straight white man is a, like in this world is a form of activism because the world is the system that we live in is so catered for um you know straight white men is led by white people and I feel like there's so many different ways that activism could be defined but I think anything that goes against the system or anything that is an outlier or Yeah, anything that is against the system and anyone who doesn't benefit from the system that we live in, I think they just that existence is a form of activism.
1: Raisa and Hussein both come from countries with very unique challenges compared to things here in the United States. In the case of Lebanon, it is currently experiencing one of its most unstable periods since the 15-year Lebanese civil war that ended in 1990 with hyperinflation similar to what we've seen in recent years in Venezuela, while sitting in a part of the world with constant conflict. In South Africa, inequality continues to run rampant. The effects of apartheid are very much alive as the gap between the uber-wealthy, predominantly white class of people and the majority of the population continues to widen. 3,500 of the richest people in South Africa own more than the poorest 32 million, which is cited as the widest wealth gap of any major country in the world. So you can imagine with so many challenges just for day-to-day survival, Raisa and Hussein have challenges of their own in getting the climate message across. As they explain, it's really about framing the issue around how it really is impacting their day-to-day lives, something we still struggle to do here in the United States to a wide enough set of people.
4: Um, I don't know if uh, you or, or the listeners are following any of the news about Lebanon, but uh, we've had like two or three of our darkest years since the history of Lebanon, like since even before the independence. Some people say even during the world war and even during our civil war, it was not as bad as it is right now. Uh, We have a huge food insecurity. We don't have electricity. Uh, Our national currency has gone a huge hyperinflation more than tenfold, kind of like something that Venezuela went through Uh, kids can't go to school anymore or eat there's a huge unemployment some statistics say that 80 percent of the Lebanese people are now poor Uh, so and and climate change will only make it worse will only make it worse and uh, like I will only create much more tension and maybe also conflict I guess Lebanon is uh, in terms of uh, like uh, armed conflicts or uh, like this, this kind of insecurity is not as bad as Palestine or Syria, although we do have those sometimes. So, for example, uh, maybe one or two weeks before going to the COP, uh, there was an armed conflict in Beirut about a... There was a protest uh, against a judge which was investigating on the case of uh, the Beirut explosion which happened in August of 2020. Uh, our port uh, of, our, of our capital Beirut exploded and 200 people died. And this was a huge public uh, case uh, of like the government corruption and incompetence. But still, uh, no people responsible were uh, uh, charged or no one was held accountable. Um, So there's this judge who was really like, uh, was really trying to hold the politicians accountable and ask them for investigation. But there was a, a protest against this judge and things got violent and six people died. There was like snipers and shooting. It was one week before the cop. Uh, these events are occasional, but still they kind of, um, along other instabilities and insecurities, dictate our life in Lebanon. So people are mostly in survival mode here. So when you want to come and talk to them about the environment and climate change, they would tell you that, uh, what are you talking about? It's like you're living in, uh, in La La Land for them. I even, before going to the pre-cop in Italy, I made a kind of survey for for addressed to Lebanese youth so that I can see some of their concerns, some of their ideas, so that I can represent them in the pre-COP. And I did get one response, which was, was, are you out of your mind? We don't care about climate change, we have much more uh, basic uh, problems or necessities here, which are like the ones I mentioned, food, electricity, water medicine healthcare safety security etc so how do i go around and uh, address this as an environmental or climate activist uh, well i need to do it like uh, very carefully and i need to do it uh, very sensibly so i need to start from the people and where they are and their needs uh, so far and as a reason of all of what i've explained there's not enough climate change awareness or consciousness in Lebanon. So if you ask the average person on the street about climate change, they will probably not know what it even means. And uh, this has been the case so far. Uh, After coming back from the COP, I'm now planning to do some climate awareness or uh, climate uh, education efforts or campaigns. And I'm still to brainstorm on how to do that, actually. But I think my approach will be uh, to relate the climate crisis to the already existing struggles and and daily lives of the Lebanese people. Because, so for example, one of their uh, concerns is food security. Uh, Food is becoming more expensive. They can't afford it, especially when the food is imported. Uh, The climate crisis will only increase global food prices. This will make food even harder to access. And this will increase hunger in Lebanon. So I can like shed a light on that. Also, electricity. We don't have enough electricity um, because we don't generate our electricity. We buy it from like uh, from out sources. Um, and we don't have like so far we don't have our own production of oil and gas. But we have a huge potential of solar and wind energy, which we are not using because corrupt politicians. Uh, support um, a mafia of private generator or owners uh, which sell overpriced electricity bills. Uh, if, the, if we had renewable energy, uh, then renewable energy is free. So where do they get their money from? But still, it's something we should very much look into because we don't have electricity and we have so much potential of renewable energy. And this is, again, something that can be related to the climate crisis.
1: As we continue to find ways to raise awareness and urgency around the climate crisis, one of the more straightforward paths is framing it around public health. From the short and long-term effects of air pollution to water quality damage due to collapsing ecosystems to food insecurity from droughts to particulate matter levels hurting our cognition from wildfires. The climate crisis is very much a public health crisis that is hurting people today. Especially marginalized working class people who have little to no health care in the first place. This is not spin or some forced narrative. This is real and happening right now. Raisa reminds us just how deeply interconnected climate and social justice issues are.
0: Yeah,
2: so um, coming from South Africa, um, which is, I think, the most unequal country in the world, um, it is, I feel, like my I call myself an intersectional activist because I believe that nothing can be viewed in isolation and everything is connected and different problems are connected and I very much believe that the climate crisis is rooted in colonization and as a country who um, um was previously an apartheid state and still and people are still feeling the effects of apartheid I feel that it's not fair to expect people to prioritize the climate crisis when like so many don't even know where their next meal is coming from they've got so much else to worry about which is why I so much believe that the climate crisis is an intersectional problem because um, marginalized people and the global south and um yeah, it's the global south are gonna feel the effects of the climate crisis much harder as a result of the effects of colonization because we still haven't recovered from that and we still haven't addressed those issues, and so I feel like when dealing with the climate crisis, it definitely can't be dealt with as only the climate crisis. Like South Africa as well. Who um, oh, the electricity thing is? <laughs> it's 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 a it's a difficult situation here because um, I think we're running mainly on coal, which is bad. But we have this thing called load shedding, where I don't know. I think I think basically the country takes turns on the electricity. <laughs> we have load shedding where um, we have different stages of load shedding, like stage one, stage two, stage three, and for like it depends, and it depends what stage you're on. But for a few hours. In a day you won't have electricity like your electricity just completely shuts off and there's also a water crisis i think lots of people know about the cape town water crisis that happened in 2018 but now it's not even just um it's not even only like a drought it's the corruption is so bad here that our municipalities don't look up to the infrastructure. And so my home city, Johannesburg, I know they didn't have water for a few days just because everything is so bad. And this is now not even linked necessarily to the climate crisis it's linked to corruption it's linked to the effects of apartheid but obviously we can see how the climate crisis is going to make it worse if we're already suffering with droughts if we're already suffering with the lack of electricity with the climate crisis it's going to get a lot worse and i feel like we got to deal with those we have to deal with those things um while addressing the climate crisis like everything needs to be dealt with together and so I feel like when trying to mobilize and trying to talk to people, one thing I realized um, in my activism journey is that as activists sometimes we have a very saviorist complex. And I, like I myself, I went into activism. I went in going, like thinking that I need to teach marginalized people about climate change. We need to teach people about the climate crisis. And I realized people know people know about the climate crisis. They just don't know what to do. And I feel like listening to them, listening to people and and really like, like especially coming from the global South, especially coming from like marginalized countries. And it's really about connecting with people and listening to people and really seeing how different issues intersect. Like the week before I went to COP, I was at an African Climate Alliance Open Space and there was this 14 year old girl there, 14 years old. And she was talking about how the climate crisis is making her miss school because um, they didn't have water. And when they did have water, it wasn't clean and so they all got diarrhea and they had to go to the clinic and now the clinic lines are really long so they're waiting the whole day in line for the, at the clinic. And just in that story, you can see like problems that are related to 10 different issues. And that's why I think, especially in the global South, emphasizing and under, really understanding that it's an intersectional issue is so important.
1: It's important to understand what Raisa means by intersectional activist. The concept of intersectionality is essentially identifying how different established systems of power all work together, or intersect, to hurt those who are marginalized the most, essentially to maintain their power under control. It means that we cannot just focus our activism on any one single thread and expect any change in the overall systemic issues, even if we move the needle, so to speak, on that thread. The climate crisis is intersectional in this regard. Social justice is intersectional in this regard. And those two issues are very much intersectional with each other. So Raisa focuses her activism not on one strand or issue, but on how multiple systems are working to maintain a world that continues to benefit such a small group of people while also damaging the planet.
2: Like in South Africa, um, I say it's the most unequal country because again like it's a previous apartheid state so white people are the minority but um they are the at the top of the chain top of the system like the richest areas are white areas and so even then when we're looking at transitioning um in the climate crisis you'll get rich white people with their electric cars and their solar panels and the ability to go vegan and even that like transition is so because like how do you tell people we need to switch to electric cars when people don't have like so many people don't have transport in the first place they don't have cars how do we um like how do you like how do you tell people that um public transport is the best alternative when south africa doesn't have a public trans- a good public transport system a safe one like i have a railway station behind my house but i can't take the train because it's so unsafe that if i get on i probably won't get off um, and so definitely there needs to be, the, there definitely needs is, are different ways that um, we need to address this, but also rich people here are the minority and they have the most power and the majority of the people are living in poverty. And for me, what where my heart lies and where my activism lies is engaging with the people who are going to be the most affected. and listening to them because I personally like if we look at South Africa even though I am marginalized I am one of I am like one of the more privileged ones I am in like the like the small percent of privileged people and so I believe like with the climate crisis everyone needs to be involved but at the same time throughout history it's been white voices that are always at the center of these movements. And with the climate crisis, we can see, um, like we can see now, like in the global movements, it's still white voices at the center, white people at the center. And so I feel like even within the activism, there needs to be this shift, like this decentering of white people, because yes, everyone's voices matter. Everyone's voices deserve to be heard. But when one group has historically been given the chance to have their voices heard and are still currently, their voices are at the center. I feel like there needs to be this a much bigger effort to engage with the people who have always been excluded. And that's where I think my activism lies with, new yeah, my activism I just like, you know, inclusivity and listening to and platforming people who have been erased and will continue to be
1: erased, you know? I think a great example of that Um, To just to put it in tangible terms is was a report that came out from the UN earlier this year, evaluating the health of various tropical forests and they were looking at forests that were still controlled and owned by indigenous communities, which sadly is getting smaller and smaller and forests that were protected by, you know, governments and corporations. Uh, protected, meaning they weren't being necessarily farmed and destroyed like unprotected forests are. And they looked at protected forests from basically wealth and governed forests from indigenous communities. And across the board, the forests, the same forests, the same conditions, but under indigenous control were healthier. We're sequestering more carbon. We're actually even producing more natural harvest of wild fruits and, and plant life, um, like just in on every measure, we're doing better. And it just, you know, is an example, that, you know, when I look at that and say, we, we would all benefit from giving control of our forest back to indigenous communities, right? And giving, and I don't mean giving them governance, but actually ownership. I don't mean putting them in a position where they have a, a seat at the table, it should be their land, it should be their forest, Right where um, we don't have a seat at the table, we being, you know, the collective we of those that have power and influence. Um, and that that report just, I think, kind of points to an example where if we did give control and ownership, ownership back to indigenous communities of tropical forests, we would all benefit. All of us would benefit from it. Um, and so, yeah, it's a that, that to me is kind of like a tangible example of what you're talking about. The UN report on indigenous forestry management is something we wrote about in last week's newsletter and we'll link out to in the podcast notes. When comparing indigenous controlled tropical forests to even government protected forests where things like agricultural development and mining are not allowed, the indigenous controlled forests reduce deforestation at twice the rate of protected forests and emit half as much carbon. This is because their practices include things like agroforestry, harvesting wild plants that actually add to the biodiversity strength, and controlled fires to prevent larger wildfire outbreaks. I think we all three of us would agree uh, we're not n- making nearly enough progress on any of the climate fronts. Um, that's, why we, that's why we do what we do, right? That's why we, we do the work. But it's important at sometimes, too, to, to try to highlight where there is some progress in some areas to also not feel hopeless. Because, you know, I, I struggle sometimes between, you know, you know, feeling moments of hopelessness. And if you get too hopeless, you can get really inactive because you're like, what's the point? You know, I've been trying so hard and nothing's, nothing's happening. So is there anything that you look back, let's say even going in recent times in the last six months, last year, wherever it may be, where you see some progress, some elements of progress, even if it's nowhere near enough, um, what stands out to you both of like an example where you've seen some progress and then we'll, and then we'll flip, to where you see the biggest gaps and, you know, where, you know, where there's complete lack of love progress where we should focus attention. But I, I first want to ask you of where do you both, you know, what's an example where you've seen some progress, some shift, even if it's like a somewhat of a mindset shift and the, the you know, the policy that fo- follows it still has to happen, whatever it may be. What's an example where you both have seen some, some form of, of progress.
4: Uh something i consider as progress is um i heard that uh, a couple months ago maybe the, the the u.n announced that they now consider that uh, a good or safe or healthy environment is a, considered now a human right and i think this is considered a progress because this is a very basic argument i don't know why it came so late to the other human rights discussions, but I think it's good because many things can be built on that and uh, other forms of progress. Um, At the COP, maybe there was not much progress, but I guess the inclusion of the word fossil fuel or uh, the mentioning of uh, loss and damage, although there was no funding for it, but this is maybe like a very small progress. Uh, Nationally in my country, hmm, I would say the the progress which I witnessed or something, maybe not progress, but something I was happy about was when I did this uh, response campaign to the oil spill that happened. I saw so many young people uh, give from their time and volunteer uh, to work uh, for this campaign. I think, yeah, uh, and that made me happy and like proud of what I saw.
1: What about you, Raisa?
2: Yo, this is COP26, and you're telling me that this is the first time fossil fuels were mentioned, like with 25 yeah. COPs before that, and the whole like, COP is like climate change conference. <laughs> it's
1: crazy. And this is
2: the first time, uh, eh, eh, oh, yeses, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, yo, that's intense. So like, Ish, you know, COP, if this now, it's this was COP26 and fossil fuels was only mentioned for the first time at this one, um, I'm not even going to talk about COP or like I'm not even going to go into those kind of things.
1: Hussein is correct that this was the first ever COP where fossil fuels were specifically called out in the agreement with an alignment to phase down coal. However, Raisa is also correct that this is so sad and absurd that we have found ourselves at a place where that's even a partial victory. In the last minute at COP, language to phase out coal was rejected in favor of phasing down coal due to many countries not wanting to so quickly lose their beloved coal. This goes to show us that our world leaders are not doing nearly enough still to address this crisis. Progress, yes, but painstakingly behind where we needed to be. For Arisa, she sees progress in the increased dialogue, awareness, and attention the climate crisis is finally getting. And this is very much true. A study from National Geographic found that 72% of Americans now feel global warming is a critical issue to address, and nearly half of those surveyed would support a tax on pollution. We must remember that individual advocacy and dialogue are so critical to saving this planet
2: the shift that i'm seeing and the shift that i'm involved with and the shift that really gives me strength is the shift in like public awareness i think every year or every strike or every event there are more people who are involved more people who are aware there's this i've been seeing this shift in you know public public interest and public awareness and more more like organizations are getting involved with in the climate crisis and um, wanting to talk about the climate crisis. Media, well, in South Africa, media is now starting to talk about the climate crisis. More people are talking about the climate crisis. And I feel like for me, the shift is now in the streets. It's in the people, it's on the ground. And for me, that's the most powerful shift. And that's, for me, that's where change is going to come from. And that's where change comes from, because pe- the people, are the majority of the people are, are driving the change. And yeah, that's where I see the shift.
1: To that To that point, how how do you both think we can balance creating more awareness and activism in this way without going to the point where we're putting the responsibility on individuals, right? Because to your point, you made rice earlier, things like being able to drive electric cars and eat vegan are privileges. And it's absurd, absurd to think like, that is how we're going to solve the climate crisis is get everyone to eat vegan and drive electric cars. It's, it's, right? it's, it's, it's absurd and it's not. And as someone who is vegan and drives electric cars, <laughs> no, right? like I, like I, I fully acknowledge, like I have, uh, I'm very lucky to be able to do those things. And, and I, I don't do those things to get applauded for it. I do it because I think it's the right thing to do but I'm always wary of trying to find that balance of, I want more people to be aware of this issue. I want people to find a way to get involved in whatever that means for them, that they can do. But I also don't want it to be the individual's responsibility, right? Cause it's really the system. It's the bigger systems that have to change the system of how we produce energy, right? The system yes. of, of how we, we make these decisions at the government, at the corporation level. Um, but you can see a world where corporations love and really benefit from framing the climate crisis as an individual action. And a great example was you know, the, the carbon footprint calculator. So in early 2004, it was British Petroleum, it was BP oil that publicized the carbon footprint calculator. They were telling you the individual, now you should, you should calculate your carbon footprint and lower it. Because why? Because they want it to be your responsibility. Not their responsibility as a massive oil and gas company to lower their emissions. They want you to do that, even though you can't actually do that because, let's like, you can only do it to a certain degree because, well, like, for example, you can't, you don't choose where your electricity comes from. If your electricity comes from fossil fuels, you can't just get off of that. That's not even capable for you so how how do you balance that where like you want to get more people aware and involved and you do amazing work and protests and and movements and organizations to create that awareness but you also want to balance it where you don't you don't want to frame it as it's the individual's job to solve this crisis so how do you find how do you find that balance
2: i have a lot to say about that oh i'm very passionate about that yeah go ahead Um, like for me like even um doing all my protests and my school boycott and everything my like whole thing is that it's not individuals; it's not our fault um even like when I was speaking to our minister of environmental affairs um at her meeting last year at this um, meeting with youth she had last year she was saying that it's the youth's job to change public perception and she's telling us that we must go and make change in our own communities and I went to and I was like, by saying that it's the youth job change public perception. By saying that it's because people litter and stuff that the climate crisis is happening, you're not acknowledging that it's the companies, the industries that are at fault. It's governments that are at fault. It's not the people. And I feel like in my um in my activism and in the intersectionality, it's all about that. Because even with veganism, I it's so frustrating to see mainstream media's um push towards um veganism being the solution to the climate crisis because it's not about what you eat it's about how it gets to your plate because even vegan products there's so many vegan products that are bad for the environment it's made unsustainably and the whole problem is how we do things we need to be like we need to be sustainable like how dare you blame this Old man with a goat in his backyard for the climate crisis because keeping chickens and goats and whatever is a lot more sustainable than going to the store and buying like almond milk and avocados. And I feel like that's what we need to be focusing on the fact the, that the system itself is inherently flawed and it's the industries at fault. It's what 100 companies that are doing like most of the emissions. And I feel like that's. That's the thing, there's so much greenwashing and it's like with events like COP. Like I was so upset because the first thing I see when I walk into one of the COP venues is a sign saying together we can change things. And it's like, who's we? The, pe- the people didn't cause this. The company, like the industries this. you caused this. And yes, the people need to be part of the solution. But when it comes to the climate crisis and accountability, there needs to be a much bigger emphasis on the fact that it is industries at fault and not people, not ordinary people. And there isn't this emphasis because obviously the people in power are benefiting from blaming people because when you blame individuals, they don't have to take accountability. Exactly.
4: You
0: know?
1: Yeah. It's a way to keep keep their power and keep kind of keep the status quo. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that, Hussain?
4: I for sure agree with Raisa that um, these huge industries collectively and on the bigger picture have much, much more impact than like uh, changing lifestyle habits. And I'm sure there are statistics behind that. And it only makes sense. Um, and how to, how to keep the focus on the uh, systems change and the industries instead of only the small lifestyle changes. I think uh, by, by, by turning the focus and attention uh, constantly reminding of the bigger picture. So for example, if you have an action or if you're having a protest or a, an awareness session, whatever, trying to push for like so, some small specific changes or try to motivate people to use this to take this uh, uh, choice instead of that one to be more climate or carbon f- uh, climate friendly or like have a smaller carbon footprint. I think it's important to always then again connect it to the bigger picture and tell them you are doing this because this is the right thing to do but still uh, taking it back again to the bigger picture and and um, and organizing the people and mobilizing the people to take action and put pressure on the systems which are causing the climate crisis, which are the fossil fuel industries or like the industries at, at large. So for example, uh, the fashion industry has a huge carbon footprint, like this huge fashion brands which exploit and pollute. For example, our food systems, which have a lot of food waste and we produce food so unsustainably. I think this is how you, again, bring back the aim at the large industries and the systems at hand. But there's also one other thought that I would like to add that's been keeping my mind busy recently is um like okay i'm an activist and all of us activists we are against the system and it's a bad system but then i tell myself there is there should be a reason that this system is here in the first place so yes i'm i think for sure like some people are benefiting from these systems much disproportionately more than others and and these systems are creating inequalities and widening the gaps more and more as time goes on or uh, as our planet goes into more crisis. But I think like there is like something very, um, how can I say it, Uh, fundamentally um, like wrong or that we need to change because even us, like we are benefiting from these same systems like even us the activists and everyone we are benefiting from these same systems that we are criticizing or trying to to break so for example we are now using electricity which is coming from fossil fuels um, so this this, this is uh, some some people like they they use it as a like a criticism to climate activists that you're being hypocritical uh, that you're criticizing something that you're benefiting from. I don't think it's true that we are being hypocritical because we didn't have a cho- really a choice in uh, choosing the system and like our lives kind of depend on it. But um, but then again, the system is here and it's here for a reason. And um, okay, we say that these people are in power, they have so much power and they are benefiting a lot. But I would like, for example, to, like, I never know what it is to be, like, a oil company president or the owner of, a like, or a huge politician in this industry. Like, I know that they hold the biggest responsibility to change these things because they are, they have more power to do so. But I would like to really, to be for one day in their position to really see, like, how it is. From that, from their that perspective, and I never even talked to one of them. And uh, like commenting on this uh, banner that Reisa saw, like we should change the system together, or uh, like I forgot the exact words, but you know, it's something that we can do together. I um, I might like disagree with Reisa on this. Maybe it's not we like meant by the people, but I think all of us humans, we should change this together no matter if you were are an activist or an oil company president or whatever we should all work to change this because it will harm us all uh, at the end of course disproportionately in unequal uh, amounts but still um so this is just i was sharing a I thought I was having recently. like It's just a train of thought.
1: Yeah, they're, they're, building off of that, uh, did you both see there was a, a TED talk, I think it was a TED event, I want to say a couple months ago, right before COP, um, where I think it was the CEO of Shell was on stage with the founder of Engine One, which is a sort of activist hedge fund, and a climate activist from, I believe she was from Ireland. Do you know what I'm referring to? The
4: uh, yeah, I think I, I I saw such an event and they, yeah, I, I it remember that. Okay, that they doesn't and speak. It's
1: yeah, and so I want to I want to get both your thoughts on this. I, I so watching that and just for our audience, uh, I'll link to it in the podcast notes so you know what we're referring to for those that don't don't know it. But essentially, in a nutshell. Um, you know, they both, they got to introduce themselves. The Shell guy went first, the engine one guy went second. And then the, the, the woman uh, from Ireland, the activist um, went third and, and she gave a very passionate and very direct um, criticism um, of the Shell CEO and pointing out all like, you know, kind of all the, the kind of BS that he's, you know, sitting there claiming that he's, you know, they're, they're taking this seriously and they're, you know, uh they're they're all they're they're very pro renewables while his company continues to support the advancement of abusive fossil fuels and um and in human rights abuses and and a lot of things that you know she 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 called out. Um the for me at that moment I was like this is great, right? She's she's not holding back. She is putting it on the table and she's not she's not gonna let him sort of Greenwash the audience, right? Which is which is good. Where where I I struggled a little bit is when, you know, after you know uh, giving her piece, she she left and sort of her 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 rationale, and I and I totally like, you know, these these are really sensitive topics. Her rationale was, I don't want to share a stage with this person. I don't want to, I don't want to give him the chance to respond to me, and that is where I felt, you know, what I. I think, I think we, you know, we can't, we, we need that, that, that person, example, that shell CEO, we need that person to, to, ch- to change the way they're, they're conducting themselves. We need them to, to like, we can't, we can't just disregard that person. Cause if we do, and if we push them aside and push them out of the movement, then they're more likely to continue doing what they're already doing. Now he may continue to do what he's already doing regardless. Right. But there's better chance that he's going to, to make, to, to support the transition to renewables in the case of shell. If, if like, you know, if there's, there's more of a dialogue and I had, I wished I had, I guess I, I hope she would have, she would have stayed on that stage and allowed him to, to respond and then engage back again and sort of just show that like, we we do need to have these dialogues. They're really hard conversations to have, right? Especially when you're hurting, and she was hurting, and that and that should be recognized. Um, but I I don't know. I was a little, I don't know. disappointed is the right word. Maybe it is. Um, you know when she when she left right afterwards and and didn't engage in a conversation after making her her very valid, passionate point, which I'm glad she did. Um, that was where I was a little disappointed. What? How did you both view that? Would you like? Do you think it was it was the the right thing for her to kind of get off that stage, or do you think would you have liked to seen some dialogue after that that stance? Or I think it speaks to this point of like, you know, how how can and should we sort of work with even those in power that are part of the that are that are the problem? I mean that that guy is the problem. There's no doubt about that, right? But do we have a better chance of of shifting his view and shifting his behavior with dialogue versus sort of cutting off. Um, that's where I, I wonder. I'm just curious how you both both think about that.
2: Well, so for me, I don't know. Um, I feel like as an like as an activist, uh, from what I've seen and what I've experienced, people don't realize how emotionally draining it is, and activists are generally expected to be um, there's lots of expectations on activists and um, I so understand why she wouldn't want to engage in that why she wouldn't want to put herself through that because it's traumatizing to put yourself through these conversations with people who don't care and who don't understand with these powerful people who are committing such heinous acts it's emotionally so draining and activists are human and they're allowed to protect themselves and allowed to prioritize their mental health that said I, like that is just defending her but I personally fully agree with her and I believe that Shell shouldn't have been given the platform the CEO of Charles shouldn't be given the platform and I think this is something I feel like in terms of um, South African issues as well. South Africa's gender based violence rate right now is the highest in the world. And for me personally, um, and without, not for me personally, well, for lots of people and without activism, we want, uh, it needs to stop right now. The gender based violence needs to stop right now because if we're gonna wait for, if we're gonna be nice to men and try and teach them and wait for them to change themselves, how many people, how many more women are going to die? How many more women are gonna be affected? Um, Like we need to have it, we need to make it so that men just don't have the opportunity to do anything, like we need to completely take that away. And same with Shouts, same with these organizations, we don't have time to try and be nice and play nice and convince them. Because the science is there. They know, what they know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. And I feel like waiting to for them to care or trying to convince them to care is very optimistic and it's not going to work how right like right now in south africa there's like this massive campaign against shale because on the first of december they're scheduled to do um surveys off the coast of south Af- the south african coast they're going to send seismic shock waves and it's gonna be terrible like it's whale migrating season it's gonna be terrible right now they're killing ecosystems they're committing so many crimes against humanity that i feel like we they don't deserve to be given that platform at all they don't deserve to be given that chance to justify themselves we need to like what we need to do is if, if we're gonna wait for them to change themselves if we're gonna wait for them to um ma- like magically decide to be better people and to magically care and put people before profit we're gonna wait a long time and we don't have a long time we need to like we need to create or we need like what needs to happen is that they don't they shouldn't have the choice they shouldn't be given the choice like and that's the problem with conferences like COP is that they're giving they like what should happen is that these companies just shouldn't have the choice whether or not like like to decide how much they're affecting the environment it needs to be completely preventative you know yeah. And so
1: I fully get it and I fully understand her I, and I totally understand her too I they just ask as a follow- up to that Raisa. Right? So I agree wholeheartedly that someone like the shell CEO should not be given a platform just with a journalist to just greenwash and you know continue to avoid the topic and avoid the issue and conv- and, and brainwash everybody to thinking they're doing everything they can when we know they're not right but that to me is a the platform of the shell CEO by himself talking to a journalist is different than the platform of a shell CEO getting criticized by someone who's calling out their bullshit and him having to answer it. Right. And then when he answers it and it's not satisfactory gets criticized again. Right. Because like, it's a different, it's a different type of dialogue than a dialogue with a journalist or a dialogue with, you know, you know, uh, with their own PR agent. Right. So I'm like, Do you think that, do you, do you, do you recognize that difference? And do you think like, you know, if, if, if she, and, and I also agree with you in that case, if for her emotional mental health, she couldn't continue forward, that needs to be protected and that needs to be recognized, but in a world, and if she could, like say, you had the opportunity, I'll just hypothetically, if, you know, you had the opportunity to sit down with that same shell CEO and let's say you know, you're, you're, you're able to get yourself in a mental state where you can do it and you have the opportunity to, to call out the truth, right. And force him to answer the truth and not give him the chance to greenwash, not give him the chance to manipulate because you're there, not a journalist, not a PR person. You're on the other side of that, of that dialogue. And you're not going to, you're not going to be tricked by him. Right. Do you think that is, is that a discussion you would be willing to have? Let's say hypothetically.
2: For me it's like these things are almost like these things seem almost pointless for me because he's just there like he's just there we're gonna have whatever conversation we have and nothing's gonna change we need like we don't need conversation we need action and these things they happen all the time these dialogues happen all the time with like presidents go up biden will go up and talk about how the climate crisis is real obama will talk about how the climate crisis is real they'll be like oh yeah the climate crisis is real okay cool you acknowledge the climate crisis is real what you're gonna do about it and same yeah. with this conversation with the shell CEO he can sit there and he can be like yeah Ray you're right um yeah Ray we're gonna change we're gonna do everything we can and it's all empty, all of these things are just words. So while these dialogues, um, I guess they they are they I'm potent. I'm like, why would I put myself through that? If, well, it depends because I know, like we know that he'd probably be greenwashing. We probably know that he probably wouldn't be sitting there like, yeah, Ray, you're right. He'd probably be defensive and it would be a difficult conversation. And for me, I don't know, sometimes I can deal with it and sometimes um, I do have the mental capacity but that sounds like such a traumatizing thing to put myself through sitting and talk and trying to get through to the CEO of Shell who is actively killing with their policies and with their actions. Like they're actively killing and sounds so traumatizing to try and now convince someone like that to care or try or it's like you're pouring your heart out you're laying yourself there in front of someone who doesn't care and that's what my cop experience was as well it was activists laying themselves bare, asking and begging for change and being actively ignored like I cried so much one day because being actively ignored like that was is heartbreaking. And I feel like having that discussion with the CEO of Shell, where you're gonna be so actively dismissed, is emotionally so draining.
1: That's, yeah, totally. I I get where you're coming from in the sense of you know where you know, where does the conversation stop and the action start? Right. And, and if we, if we find ourselves in perpetual conversations, we're not actually progressing towards anything. And maybe there's a world where, you know, there is no conversation allowed until, until verifiable audited action is proven. Um, At the same time, we also know that we can't wait for that either. Right. Like we, we can't wait on shell to get the act together. So it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, um, I it's a it's a it's a hard, yeah, it's a hard sort of needle to thread. Uh, needle to thread. Um, what are your what are your thoughts on this, Hussein?
4: You're right. This is a very tricky situation, and this is why the climate crisis still exists. Because, um, like, even if the people who caused the climate crisis or who are mostly benefiting from it, uh, they acknowledge that they need to change. But still, their interests currently are still in the current system. And they will only change if change is more interesting to their own personal or economic interests than the status quo. And on uh, having a discussion with the sh- CEO of Shell, I do agree 100% uh, with Raisa that uh, it, it, I can imagine very much how emotional draining it would be and um about this girl uh, who left uh, the discussion um yeah if, if this is like she felt that she could she can't take it any more than um i could also completely understand her leaving um should we have uh, discussions with the ceo of shell or not i think It depends on what they are there to say and in what frame it will be framed. I think any discussion with any CEO of oil company or whatever should be framed. Like if you can even replace their name tag with CEO of Shell by climate change culprit. I think that's a good place to start. Like, uh, Like to be like so much clear and transparent that, we are only having this discussion with you because you have so much power, but it's not because uh, we are giving you a chance to justify yourself. There should be not any chance given for justification, only for um, I don't know if holding them accountable is the right, the right word. And I know that they 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 were probably going to such an event in their own interest, so how really do they how much really do they want to do they go to these events and discussions to actually um listen and so I so I really do get where uh, where is it's coming from that like they should be more changing than rather than talking but I also agree with uh, you James that they are part of the puzzle and I think like no change will happen without them in being involved. But again, this is, this is my personal opinion. And how radical should you be? Like this is a thing of politics. Like some people think you can't be anything less than completely radical, but then how useful is that? I think this is a matter of like uh, a belief. Everyone has a different uh, belief like in their political uh, position. Um, so I think if you, you know, maybe certain discussions with certain people in the fossil fuel industries are maybe, I don't know, useful or possible, but it's very important. Like it depends on what they are there to say and how it is framed because it's very dangerous to allow them and give them more space so that they can greenwash, Especially if there are people in the audience who are like not completely aware or like they're uh, regular people. and Because this might give them more power to maintain their current systems. So it's very tricky and dangerous.
1: Finally, we wrapped up our chat discussing their plans for 2022 and where they are focusing their messaging and efforts. With so much to do and so much passion behind their work, it can be overwhelming to stay focused. I know this is true even for myself. So I was curious to ask them what lies ahead.
2: For me, going into twenty two, coming from COP and with all these new experiences I've gained this year, I feel like I really, this year, realized that where my heart lies and where I'm best is well I always say that when it comes to social justice I'm a lot better at the social part (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and for me what I really want to do and what I'd really love to do is start like working like within communities and doing things like on a grassroots level doing engaging with local organizations local people and listening to people and like really connecting with people and engaging with people because conferences like COP and what the west tends to do is reduce people in the global south to statistics when every single person has a story, every single person has an experience, every single person has an experience of the climate crisis and what I would love to do is engage with every, like engage with people and listen to people and create a space of mutual learning and connecting and understanding each other and um, in South Africa, um, one of um, the movements I'm part of is the climate justice charter movement and the climate justice charter is this amazing local document that was drafted over a period of seven years with a lot of consultation like extensive um collaboration and it was handed over to parliament last year and like like they're demanding that the climate justice charter is adopted in south Af- in south africa and what we want to do and what I think I think like my baby and my passion and where what I really want to go is doing workshops uh like climate workshops and I feel like it's a really lovely way to engage with young people in marginalized communities because there's so many marginalized communities here and yeah that's I think going into 2022, that's something I'm really excited about. Being with people and connecting with people.
1: Um, And what about for you, Hussein?
4: For me, so so before this year, I was mostly an environmental rather than climate activist. So I was more focused about the local issues in Lebanon. Uh, First, because as I said, there's not enough if even any climate awareness in Lebanon being such a global issue and us Lebanese people having so many much more basic problems and second because I didn't have any opportunity to network or reach out to like international opportunities or organizations or people so that I can do something or work or collaborate with others but now after the COP And um, after what uh, I did in the COP, like during the the COP, I was able to uh, hand over the Global Youth Statement uh, of Climate, uh, the one that was done uh, by Yongo to our Lebanese uh, delegation team. And we discussed with them on how to involve more uh, Lebanese young people in climate climate negotiations and decision making process. After I came back here, I was invited uh, to a meeting with the Ministry of Environment and the UK embassy. This is the UK presidency uh, is now, the co-presidency is now with the UK, where we talked also about uh, involving more youth and there were some young people sharing the, what they have done. So I think my plan for 2022 is to organize a local conference of youth in mm-hmm. and Alkoi, and having the outcomes of this conference uh, feed into the uh, position of Lebanon in the next COP and hopefully also have a, from now on a dedicated official uh, youth uh, negotiator on the team, on the Lebanese team and having them like in- actually included and and, uh, and and also uh, having them giving them the chance to learn and to participate, not just in the COP, but all year in the preparations and the climate negotiations. But I hope I can, like this is my first time I try to do such a thing. So I really hope I would be able to pull this off. I'm not sure if I can do it. Um, like I did talk to one organization for funding during the COP. If I have funding, this would like increase the probability much more. Because as you know, uh, with no income and le- in such a country, like there's not much you can do. If you need to worry on having food on the table, instead. But uh, hopefully, if, thing- if things go well and as planned, hopefully I might be able to do something. This year. Fingers crossed.
1: It takes all of us to save this planet. Every single one of you out there has a skill or superpower you can bring to the table. We are tremendously lucky to have people like Raisa and Hussein in this world and their willingness to dedicate their superpowers, art, creativity, public advocacy, community building, to saving this planet. I thank them both for joining us, and I hope you can follow them on social and support their efforts. Thank you for supporting Animalia. And as always, thank you for supporting this big beautiful planet and all the incredible life on it. So next, time.
3: And that's
0: our show. Like what you heard, Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
3: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
0: Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com.
3: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel, And I'm still Sharon Lee Toney. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.